Uh, oh, this we never did the and this is Marvel reread club thing at the beginning of the episode. Oh, we didn't. All right. No, not at all. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. I know usually when we do the, so how was your week? You know, I'm, I'm often like, eh, nothing much. Let's just go on ahead and jump into the comics. I could actually do a whole podcast episode just about what happened to uh, my household this week, but... I will not do that. I'll just give you a couple of cliff notes and highlights. The catalytic converter was stolen out of my car. Then uh, there's a scofflaw out there somewhere who has a copy of an old license plate that I used to have. We sometimes get tolls and fees and stuff like that that they rack up, and they just started racking up a lot more. We got that on Monday. A whole bunch of other stuff dealing with software from Adobe, yada, 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 all sorts of stuff. It's been a week. Automotive crimes of various kinds are plaguing you. Yes, yes. Uh, And so I had to deal with the police, the insurance company, you know, like I said, Adobe software on an unrelated issue, all sorts of stuff. It's been a busy but unproductive week. (laughs) Oh, also a hurricane blew through. You may have heard of Hurricane Ian. And by the time it hit me here in Greensboro, North Carolina, I believe they called it a subtropical depression by that point. But it still did a fair amount of uh, knocking down limbs and stuff like that. There were some trees that fell over. And it knocked power out at my house for a little over a day. And then after it was back on for about a day, it then got knocked out again for another couple of hours. Just tack that on to the end of everything else. <laughs> oh, and it was my anniversary yesterday. So. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Happy anniversary. Thank you. So, yeah, quite a week. Quite a week. Yes. That was the abbreviated version. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. We've had a better week here. I actually had some news. I actually read a book. I read a book about Marvel Comics. I wasn't even an audiobook. It's very, very, very rare that I read a book that is not an audiobook. But this book was not available in audiobook. And it was a book that I felt I had to read in actual pages like an actual doofus. It is called <laughs> The Story of Marvel Studios, The Making of the Marvel Cinematic Universe by Tara Bennett and Paul Terry. And it is a fascinating book. It's sort of a coffee table book because it's got a lot of pictures. But it's also just got a lot of text, uh, which took me an awful long time to read. All sorts of wonderful things I've learned about the Marvel Cinematic Universe that I will be looking forward to sharing as it comes up. But one of the things that really blew me away about this book is that they said to Joss Whedon, we need you to write the first Avengers movie, and it looks like we're not going to get Scarlett Johansson. It looks like she is not going to be available for this movie. So he said, well, that's okay. We'll introduce the Wasp in the first Avengers movie. We'll get Zoe Deschanel to play her. <laughs> Then he wrote the first draft of the first Avengers movie, introducing Zoe Deschanel's The Wasp. Marvel read it and they're like, this is great, but this is not an Avengers movie. This is a Wasp movie. He said, oh, you're right. And they said, and it looks like we can get Scarlett Johansson. And now my goal in life is to get a copy of this Zoe Deschanel as The Wasp Avengers screenplay, because that's my Wasp. Evangeline Lilly is a fine actress. They've done okay with the Wasp as a character in the MCU, but I would have absolutely loved to have seen that Zoe Deschanel Wasp Avengers movie. That is my Wasp. That is my character. And I'm just dying to get a copy of the screenplay. (laughs) Oh, also one more thing that uh, I did this week. Speaking of audiobooks, I finally bought a copy of your latest audiobook. And I have been listening to it. Oh, good. And it's a great read, even for myself, not a writer, but it's still just a great read. This is a book, The Secrets of Character, Writing a Hero Anyone Will Love. 
this book I published this year. They asked me to read it myself, read the audiobook. And I said, no, I do not want to do an audiobook in which I am giving my best Black Panther impersonation. And I told them to hire the same person who had recorded the first book, Eric Michael Summer, and they did. I'm going to trust some professional actor to be able to read these quotes without having to act out these voices, which I know I'm not supposed to act out the voices, but I can't help acting out the voices. And then I get the voices I should not be the one to be acting out. So I guess we need to start talking about comics eventually here, don't we? Yeah, we do. We are starting out with Amazing Spider-Man, and I'm taking that one. Spidey battles Daredevil. And we will also have the Ringmaster. The Ringmaster really feels to me more like a Ditko villain than a Kirby villain, even though he did come from the Kirby days of Hulk. But I really like Ditko's iteration of the Circus of Crime and the Ringmaster. Yeah, it's interesting that this is our second appearance of Ringmaster and his Circus of Crime. But it's really just Ringmaster that in both the previous appearance and this appearance, Dicko is not really bringing over any of the other members of the circus from Kirby's issue of Hulk, where Ringmaster and Circus of Crime appeared. So it'll be a while before we actually get Princess Python and the clown and the, what are they called, Gambini brothers? Or well, uh, I think we have the, Gam- the Gambino brothers or whatever they're called right here. But, you know, we don't really get much personality from them and we don't get any names. Yeah, no, no one besides the Ringmaster is named in this issue, which is fascinating. So uh, this one is written by Stan Lee, master of the spoken word. Illustrated by Steve Ditko, Dean of Dramatic Drawings, lettered by S. Rosen, Sultan of Sparkling Spelling. Yes. Pete is making excuses to get away from Aunt May nagging him about going out on a date with Mary Jane. And so he slips out and goes on patrol as Spider-Man. But in the so, first panel, in the first panel, we get something we've never seen before. We get this bizarre idea that Pete Parker has when he says, but I've got a girlfriend, Aunt May. I don't want any blind dates. So Pete Parker has now arrived at this idea that if you have a girlfriend, you shouldn't be dating other girls. This is not something. <laughs> this is a completely new idea in the world of Spider-Man, because up until this point, for the previous 15 issues, it's been understood that, like, look, I may have a girlfriend, but I'm still going to go on lots of dates with other girls. Like, that's been totally normal. So I think that maybe we've got some shifting cultural mores here. <laughs> we've uh, <laughs> suddenly this this crazy idea is introduced in the first panel of this book that uh, if you've got a girlfriend, you shouldn't go on dates with other girls. So Spider-Man sees some robbers and he's like, oh, good, some action. I can go ahead and do something here. And they are about to kill a blind guy who might serve as a witness. Now, it seems weird that a blind guy would be a witness, but they do mention that he might be able to recognize our voices. But of course, this blind guy is Matt Murdock, who is Daredevil. He was about to take them by himself, but goes ahead and stands by and lets Spidey do it. Uh, There is a fantastic tumbling pass on page three. Spider-Man is just, as he's tumbling, he's just saying, whap, thonk, pow, on all these these robbers that are here. Just really fun panel. Then we get Matt Murdock changing into Daredevil on the next page once Spider-Man leaves. We are getting a little bit of exposition about the character for people who might not have picked up an issue of Daredevil yet. Daredevil minus his little backpack. No little backpack for Daredevil like he had when we last saw him in his own book. Ditko does a really good job here with Daredevil swinging his way to his office. Just I really like the visuals there. And once again, the way that Ditko thinks through the choreography of what's going on with the set pieces, as it were. 
So you can really see him jumping from this object to that object with a particular angle that it would put him at. It's just a really nice, nice sequence here, especially for a character that is not his and he hasn't done before. One thing that we failed to mention last week is I'd meant to point out in the last episode we did when Thor guest starred in Doctor Strange, Stan Lee specifically apologized for Steve Dicko's rendition of Thor. <laughs> he said, here's Thor and Doctor Strange. I'm sorry, Dicko really can't draw him very well. I've apologized to Jack personally. Now I will apologize to you, the readers of Marvel Comics. It wasn't quite that. <laughs> sure, it's going to be really off model in this issue. This time, Stan does not feel the need to apologize for Steve Dicko's drawings of either Daredevil or, for that matter, Kirby's characters or the ringmaster of crime. Dicko acquits himself quite well with Daredevil and this Kirby character, the ringmaster of crime. They both feel like natural Dicko characters. Yep. So Circus is in town and Foggy, his law partner, invites Matt to join him and Karen, their office assistant, to the circus. Now, it seems a little bit weird to invite a guy who can't see to a circus. Of course, he would be able to enjoy it, but they wouldn't know that. I think they're just trying not to have him feel left out. Well, it's funny because like at first... They're like, oh, come on to the circuits. It's like, well, that's sort of insensitive to avoid a blind man to the circuits. He won't enjoy much. And then he's like, don't worry, Matt. I'll explain everything that's happening to you in the circuits. I'm like, okay, well, I guess that's kind of nice to invite your blind friend along the circus and offer to explain everything. And then like two panels later, he's like, okay, here we are, Matt. If you want anything explained, just ask. I'm like, okay, well, that's <laughs> like, yes, I need every single thing to be explained to me. I am blind. 99% of the value of a circus is visual. You don't go there to hear the ringmaster bark commands. Uh, no, but you do go there be... for... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you want to hear that music. So I'm like, it's one thing to promise to your blind friend, like, come to the circus. I promise I will explain everything. And then to abruptly change the deal at the last second to like, oh, if you want anything explained, just ask. Pretty crappy. So the Circus of Crime is the one who is running this circus, of course. Uh, and they are advertising a charity show that they're running to try to get more people in. Oh, it's for a good cause. And they advertise that Spidey will be making an appearance. So Pete sees one of these ads and decides, you know what? Spider-Man could use some good PR. I might just actually show up. You know, I'm, I'll just actually show up for this thing. It's for charity. You know, hey, why not? But then Betty ends up accidentally finding out that he's going to the circus and has not invited her. So, of course, she starts just crying and walking off. It's like, oh, no, I understand being all passive aggressive. I, I don't mm -hmm. care if you're taking some other girl. Yes, when she very, very much does. Matt eventually decides to go to the circus because he hears that Spider-Man is going to be appearing. And he is interested in this fellow costumed adventure hero in New York. So he wants to go. And, of course, he will be able to experience the circus more than his compatriots there because of his super senses. But nobody else knows that. Spider-Man then shows up in the middle of the circus show, surprising everybody, including the circus performers themselves. Ditko is great at having Spider-Man interact with the big top environment. Tent poles, and later we're going to see trapezes and tight ropes and all sorts of stuff like that. Ditko just has a really great time with that here. I didn't notice until right now that on the top of page nine, Ditko does something which he wouldn't normally do. He numbers Spider-Man's appearances in the panel. So he's got Spider-Man flitting all around the panel and appearing in multiple places in the same panel. And he's got little numbers to show us what order the appearances are, which uh, is yeah, not something like, Ditko like, would normally uh, do. It's like, what is it? What's his name? Billy and Family Circus? Yes, it's like Billy and Family <laughs> Circus. 
Uh, Ringmaster just hypnotizes Spidey first, then the rest of the audience. So when Spider-Man comes in, he's like, oh, man, I'm about to commit some crime. I got to make sure the superpowered guy is uh, hypnotized before I do everybody else. So then he goes ahead and hypnotizes the rest of the audience. Of course, Matt Murdock, though, has no sight. So he does not get hypnotized by the spinny ring on the ringmaster's hat. But he recognizes something has just gone terribly wrong. And so he slips out to change into Daredevil. Once again, really nice panel of him slipping out of the stands to go change to Daredevil. I always like Dicko's panels of floating faces, which uh, are so so associated with Dicko that on the cover of the Dicko coffee table book, it was a bunch of floating faces. And as Ringmaster hypnotizes the crowd, we just see a bunch of floating faces and the words, my will, my will, my will, floating amongst them. And Dicko, as always, does a great job. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, and I, I have that book. And once again, you may have given it to me or, uh, or not. But um, there are some I things I, I have learned from it uh, that I will be sharing at various points when they become relevant. So Daredevil is starting to approach the Ringmaster, and the Ringmaster is trying to hypnotize him like he would anybody else, but he won't hypnotize. And so Ringmaster is wondering why this is. So in that case, he orders the hypnotized Spider-Man to go fight Daredevil. Well, after a nice you know, fight sequence between Spider-Man and Daredevil, Daredevil eventually figures out that the hypnotizing power must be in the hat. So he then takes the hat, and uses it to de-hypnotize Spidey. Whenever they've got any of these sorts of tools, they always know how to use the tool to yes. undo the work that the tool did. It's like, I don't know, is there any owner's manual to this thing I need to look at? No, 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 just put it on like, okay, Spidey, you're de-hypnotized. So then at that point, the Circus of Crime attacks both of them in full force. So at this point, the Circus of Crime just sort of has like a generic strongman, a generic clown. The only people who will sort of recognize well from the later Circus of Crime are maybe the Acrobat Brothers. You know, pretty much just the generic Circus of Crime. And I think that's one of the reasons why I really associate the Circus of Crime with Ditko is because he's the one who really ends up coming up with the individual characters that populate the Circus of Crime going forward. So, yeah, I'd forgotten that Ringmaster and the concept of the Circus of Crime were, were earlier creations. Yeah, so the heroes have a great fight sequence with all of the Circus Prime once again having nice interactions with all the stuff that is in a big top. So like the trapeze artists are using the safety net to try and catch Daredevil like a big fishing trawling net. Spider-Man gets a whole bunch of the bad guys to bump into each other by jumping up out of their way right as they were all about to converge on him. At this point, Daredevil just sort of figures, (laughs) you know what? Spider-Man seems to have this under control. Which he totally does not. Like Spider-Man is at this point (laughs) almost being murdered by about half a dozen people who are trying to actively murder Spider-Man. And Daredevil's like, clearly he can handle this on his own. He's fine. I'm going to put on my suit and go sit in the stands. Well, remember, Daredevil has, no, Daredevil has no super strength, no invulnerability, none of that stuff. Just like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to be over there now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I guess also he has to slip back into the stands as Matt before everybody comes out of their hypnotized state. And apparently he just trusts Spider-Man. He's like, Spider-Man. And you so clearly do not seem to have this, but you've got this. You've got this. Right. You may not know it, but I know it. You've got this. And so <laughs> I'm going to leave and, it up to you from this point on. And even after he slips away, then the strong man comes and tries to like smash Spidey with a bar with a barbell. But Spidey is quite easily able to handle it because he is very super strong. Eventually, the ringmaster gets his hat back after many pages of 
great fight sequence with the Circus Prime. It's just tons of fun. Yeah, I actually forgotten uh, from my earlier read just how early Daredevil ducks out of the fight. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, no, well, there were only a few panels left. And then I'm like, oh, no, here's another page and another page and another page. Like Daredevil just sort of uh, left him held in the bag there. Ringmaster eventually gets his hat back and then tries to hypnotize Spidey. But because Spider-Man has those lenses that you can't really see his eyes through, he just approaches holding his eyes closed. The Ringmaster can't tell that he's doing. And so he just starts freaking out about like, why won't my stuff work on superheroes today? (laughs) Then uh, Spider-Man finally knocks him out, gets, gets the boss, as they usually say. Matt Murdock is the only non-hypnotized person in the stands and starts applauding. (laughs) (laughs) And Spider-Man's like, huh, that must be Daredevil, but I don't have time to go and see where he is. Uh, (laughs) Matt Murdock, you are truly terrible at the whole secret identity thing. You are... I think I think it's safe to say that of all of Marvel heroes ever, the one who is the most terrible about secret his secret identity is Matt Murdock. Certainly when Stanley is writing the book and Daredevil, as we will soon find out, gets into this whole thing with having to create a fake twin for himself. When various other people writing the book, certainly when Frank Miller is writing the book, Matt Murdock is just terrible at the whole idea of a secret identity and gets himself in more trouble with his secret identity than any other hero does. And we see right here, his absolute failure to understand the concept. Oh, yes. And this is not the first time we have seen him just be absolutely terrible with keeping his secret identity a secret. He's much worse than even Tony Stark. Or or giant, well, I don't know, giant man is pretty <laughs> terrible with it. <laughs> they all suck at it except Spider-Man. He's the only one who really cares. Spidey then uses the hat to revive the crowd and Matt slips away from his co-workers just to give the ringmaster his card saying, hey, it looks like you might need a lawyer. Here's my card. Just to rub it in a little bit there, uh, even just privately to himself. And Spider-Man heads off into the sunset. A fun issue. I really liked this one. Ditko did a great job with all of these characters, none of which, except for Spider-Man, were his before this issue, and really acquits himself nicely on everything here. It's a fun concept, and it's good. Yeah, we talked about how, for the first 15 issues of Spider-Man, leading up to this issue, that he was introducing just amazing characters in every issue. You know, these characters that then became this billion-dollar IP later. And then we talked about it in the last issue, which introduced Craven, that it was sort of the last issue of that, and that we were about to be followed up with 24 issues of just recombinating the characters we already had. And that sort of begins here. We've we've borrowing two non-Tico characters, Daredevil and Ringmaster. Then we're going to have a lot of issues uh, without this amazing Dicko Lee imagination creating these amazing new characters every issue. And we sort of get the first issue of that here. And it's fine. It's fun. Who needs to have a great new character every issue? This is one of two books we're going to read this month where there's a big fight in the circus. Stanley loves circuses. Steve Dicko loves circuses. And Jack Kirby loves circuses. They all love circuses. And why not? Circuses are a tremendous amount of fun. And Dicko really goes to town with the circus here. He really has a lot of fun with it, just as Kirby will later this month in X-Men, which will probably be in a different episode of the show. But this is a lot of fun. I want to single out panel for praise on the bottom of page 11, where we are from the top of the trapeze tower looking down at Daredevil at the top and then Spider-Man climbing up after him in the middle ground and Ringmaster down at the bottom in the distance. You know, any sort of extreme perspective like that, Ditko just draws the hell out of, and I'm always a big fan of it. 
I think this issue is tremendous fun. You know, you get to these issues where you get this a lot at this point in the Marvel Universe where it's like, well, you know, hey, it's a new show of Spider-Man. And by the way, kids, you should also be buying Daredevil. Like, it's sort of an ad for another book, which, right. you know, uh, Spider-Man and Fantastic Four, because I get the feeling they're the best-selling books, they end up having to carry a lot of that water and to devote a lot of their space to then promoting other books. But it's fine. This is uh, certainly a much makes a much better case for Daredevil's viability than the last two issues of Daredevil's actual book I've done. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a low bar, but yes, that is true. All right, so shall we move on to Fantastic Four? Oh, let me, let me put one more thing. At one point, Spider-Man is thinking about how the hat works, and then he gives a very scientific explanation of how the hat works, and then he thinks of himself, gee, I sound like Reed Richards. As I say in at least one of my books, or maybe just my blog, don't ever do that. Don't ever have a character suddenly start talking like a different character and then try to get away with it by having the character think like, oh, I'm I'm talking, or in this case, thinking like some other character. Isn't that funny? Like, no, Stanley, if the character isn't there, then you're not allowed to have someone else suddenly think like them and then make it okay because they say that they think like they're thinking like them. Let's go ahead and jump into Fantastic Four number 30. Will the mysterious Diablo finally be the villain who succeeds in breaking up the fabulous FFC? Bashful Benjamin transformed into a startling, truly different thing. So it's interesting. I grew up reading John Byrne's Fantastic Four, and John Byrne's Fantastic Four was famously, I'm going to go back to doing Fantastic Four the way that Liam Kirby did it. And the name of his first issue when he was writing and penciling the book was Back to Basics. And it's like, I'm going to take us back to the basics, back to the Lee Kirby issues but the villain in that first issue was diablo he said i'm going to give you pure lee kirby fantastic four and pure lee kirby fantastic four is diablo he was sort of identifying diablo as like the the purest lee kirby villain so this is a major villain the first major fantastic four villain we've had introduced in a while and he's great he's got a great look he's got a great power set he is great the issue begins Written by Stan Lee, a rather nice writer, drawn by Jack Kirby, a quite noteworthy artist, inked by Chick Stone, a somewhat nifty inker, lettered by Art Simek, an occasionally neat letterer. On this first page, it's again, the Chick Stone I don't like as much. I usually love Chick Stone sinking on Kirby, but this first page, the blacks are not heavy enough. Everything feels too sketched in on this first page. Okay, yeah. Um, sort of, it looks almost like... <laughs> Well, no, it doesn't look like this, but uh, sort of uh, the stu- the thing that would be most perfected by Hergé, uh, the, what is it? Lean clear Right. Yes. Well, I'm just going to Americanize it. Lo- clear line style. Uh, yeah, but, no, it doesn't. Yeah. yeah but uh, but I just, I want him, I want him to be a little heavier in his blacks. The Fantastic Four are on vacation in Transylvania, like you do, and they have gotten lost wandering around the forest. And they have been told, especially during the Cold War, when Transylvania is behind the Iron Curtain. <laughs> Excellent point. That had not occurred to me. And the villagers have warned them to stay out of this forest because you fools, you're behind the Iron Curtain. Get out, get out while you still can. <laughs> but in addition to that, the villagers have warned them to stay out of this forest because they say it's the lair of Diablo, whatever that means. Nevertheless, they've gone and they've gotten lost. And then they find a very scary looking castle. Now, of course, we will get to a book later this month, which will make reference back to Fantastic Four Annual Number Two. So apparently, we were already supposed to have read Fantastic Four Annual Number Two before we read this month's books, because later in this month's issue of Adventures, they'll reference back to it. But we have not read those yet. In Fantastic Four Annual Number Two, we will finally get 
introduced to Latveria and find out about Dr. Doom's real castle. We've seen Dr. Doom's sort of low rent upstate New York castle, but we haven't seen his <laughs> Latverian castle. But so then we have our first Fantastic Four film to have his big European castle, and that is Diablo. We have this very wonderfully cool, spooky Transylvanian castle the Fantastic Four stumble across. At the bottom of page two, you get a fantastic picture of the Fantastic Four going up these creaky sacking steps with these beautiful sculptures next to them. But it is either penciling mistake or a coloring mistake where it looks like Reed is standing on the part of the step that is vertical that he could not be standing on. Well, I do have to say that is the kind of thing that is right in the uh, responsibilities of an inker. Because even if a penciler makes that mistake, you as the inker, you're supposed to be doing the finished art. If there's a little mistake like that that's made, you should redo the way the step is or (laughs) various little things like that. So that's on Chick Stone in in my mind. And it would have been easy enough to make it more of a sagging step so that he could have sit on it or something like that. But it's a bit of a problem. But before they can enter the castle, the local mayor, his name is Baron Hugo. You would think, therefore, he would be the baron of the territory, but he's actually the mayor of the territory, spelled M-A-Y-E-R. They misspelled mayor. Yes, (laughs) M-A-Y-E-R. I don't know. Maybe that's supposed to be an Eastern European spelling or something. I don't know. The mayor, who is Baron Hugo, comes up and says, don't go in that castle. Come back to my castle. That's where the evil Diablo lived 100 years ago. You don't want to be there. And they're like, OK, we'll come back to your castle. But in the middle of the night, then here's a siren song calling him to return to the big castle and open up a big plug in the ground and let out Diablo, who has been an evil alchemist who has been plugged up in a hole underneath the castle all these years. The Fantastic Four eventually wake up, realize Ben is gone, try to find him, follow his wrecked path through the trees to the castle, then find Ben standing there with Diablo in his castle. And Ben is now working with Diablo because Diablo has given Ben a half cure where Ben now looks more human without being totally human. And he's like, oh, this guy, he's giving me half cure. He says he's going to give me the other half at some point. I'm going to work for him. And Diablo is like, oh, sorry, guys, I took your dude. I've got all these amazing potions. Look at this stuff. I can do, I saw you would share this on Facebook where he says, observe, my wondrous potion can accomplish seeming miracles. And he drops some potion on the floor and it says, then exactly one split second later, and his gigantic flowers have grown up where he dropped his potion. Whatever exactly one split second is, that's how long his potions take. On the Facebook comment thread, there was some debate about whether a split second is a half second or not. And then I, I just said, well, you know, we'll split the difference 80-20. Yeah, exactly. So then we get our first good Reed versus Ben fight in a while where Ben is taking Diablo's side and nobody else wants him to do it. But eventually they're like, all right, Ben, you can go off with Diablo and Diablo can do his stuff. You know, he hasn't broken any laws. We get a couple of really good shots on uh, page seven with Reed literally tied up in knots, which is always a fun visual. Always fun. And then, but Reed's like, I'm going to just grab one of these vials of Diablo's stuff as I leave. Now we're going to leave. Diablo is suddenly selling his serums and potions and lotions and tonics all over the world. And people are making the deserts bloom. Americans are using his potions to create missile-proof domes. And Reed is like, dude, this guy sucks. And he is trying to do experiments with the vial that he stole from Diablo's place and discovers, I knew it. Diablo's formula is a fraud. It's dangerous. See how it's causing the test tube to shatter? And then Baron Hugo comes to him and is like, "Uh, yeah, Diablo sucks. Like, you're right. I think he's building a private army. Then, to his credit, 
Nobody needs to tell Ben this. He walks in on Diablo paying off his private army and says, hey, what's going on? And it's like, uh, you ever going to give me the rest of that cure? And he says he's going to give him the rest of the cure. But in fact, it doesn't work. And he realizes Diablo is fraud. And he starts fighting Diablo. And Diablo does have bags of cash on his table at one point with American dollar signs on them. <laughs> ben tries to fight back. He gets knocked out. The rest of the Fantastic Four are finally like, dude, let's just go try to take this guy out. Who cares if Ben doesn't want us to? You got some fun stuff going on. We get Sue kicking ass while invisible, not even using her invisible force field, just doing natural invisible kicking ass. And then she does something she's never done before. She makes Diablo invisible and he freaks out. <laughs> and we've never really gotten her using the ability to make someone else invisible as an offensive power before. But it turns out to be quite effective. And he's like getting trampled by his own men and he runs like hell to, to get out of that situation. Well, you know, remember when she first got her power, she was just bumping into everyone <laughs> everywhere. So, you know, if you're turned invisible for the first time, yeah, you're going to you're not going to know what you're doing. Sue and Johnny have broken into Diablo's castle and they're like, oh, here comes Reed. And Reed is sort of drooping through a hole in the floor in a way that is really awesome. They find Ben. Ben's been sealed up inside a tube. They confront Diablo and Diablo eventually gets all of them sucked up into tubes as well. But Ben breaks free. He is tired of being a pawn in this game. There's a great bit where he crunches a suit of armor and fuses it into a perfect sphere and is bouncing that all over the room ricocheting, trying to get Diablo. Ben gets him back inside his little hole in the ground, plugs it up, which should be fine, because remember, the only reason that didn't hold him for the last hundred years is because Ben was the one who let him out. But then Ben says, no, I'm going to crash the whole castle down on top of you, even though my friends and family are still inside. (laughs) And so I'm going to completely destroy this castle, which will presumably kill Diablo and also kill Reed, Johnny, and Sue. But he then realizes retroactively his mistake helps them get out. Diablo, presumably dead, but just in case, then Johnny melts the entire castle into a big dome on top of making sure that Diablo is completely sealed up. They then realize, whoops, they're lost again in the forest of Transylvania behind the Iron Curtain. And they have to find their way out. And Well, they don't the realize end. they're behind the Iron Curtain. We, we <laughs> realize that. but uh, I didn't realize that. I read this whole issue. It didn't occur to me. <laughs> I think this is an excellent issue. Chick Stone, for the most part, does a great job inking Kirby. Kirby and Lee allowing their imagination to flower in all sorts of ways as they make the deserts flower. And Diablo is a villain for the ages who will be around a lot. Just in general, you know, sort of a sitcom feeling to the whole thing of like, are we lost again? You know, I I enjoy. Especially that final panel just has very much the feel of the fade to credits of a sitcom. (laughs) (laughs) it's just floating heads of all of them with these huge smiles and or laughing mouths on their faces except of course ben who's cranky i don't know i like this issue what do you think i liked it as well i mean diablo is someone who you know i think i liked him better when i was younger but now i'm looking at him i'm like what's the big deal with this guy he's just basically a snake oil salesman but you know he has a great look and this is a fun issue i just think alchemy is Fertile ground for storytelling. So I I think we can just move straight on to our next issue here, which I will be summarizing. So this is Journey into Mystery number 108, or I guess they're now saying Journey into Mystery with the Mighty Thor. The cover promises that Thor will be fighting Loki. Excellent. They will be fighting over Jane Foster. Eh, 
<laughs> Tales of Asgard is going to have Trapped by the Trolls. So, okay, good. Tales of Asgard is going to appear in here and have a good showing. And it points out that Doctor Strange, so-called Master of Black Magic, will be appearing in this issue as well. Uh, so what you were pointing out earlier that we're now getting a lot more of these Hey, kids, you like this hero? Well, why don't you check out this other hero? Well, and it's interesting that in the last issue of Doctor Strange, we had Thorkester, but they never met. So we just right. had Thorkester and Doctor Strange's book, but they never met. And now we've got Doctor Strange starring in Thor's book, and they will be. And as I said, they felt the need to apologize when Thor appeared in Doctor Strange's book for like, uh, this is going to be off-model art, kids. They do not feel the need to apologize for Doctor Strange appearing in Thor's book. So they, they do not go like, uh, Doctor Strange is going to be off model here because it's Kirby. You know, it's so good to have an Asgardian villain back. We've had so many lame non-Asgardian villains. It's so good to have him battling Loki again. But this could not be a more generic Thor cover with Thor just sort of generically grappling with Loki while Jane is held hostage in the background. Like, yes, yes. okay, that is that is a Thor issue. That is that is the most generic possible Thor issue you could have. <laughs> yes, indeed. Okay, so this issue starts out with a really bizarre sequence where Thor causes massive destruction without explaining to anyone what he's doing to save one kid who's about to get hit by a garbage, no, a cement mixer truck. Uh, and yes, save the kid with, who's about to get run over by the cement mixer truck. I have no problem with saving him. But if you look at panel two, page two, uh, that is doing massive destruction to the city of New York in order for him to uh, create this shockwave that will make the cement mixer truck bounce over the kid. You, you got to find a better way to do that. That's not that's not a good idea. Yes. So uh, then Thor gets a magical call for help from Doctor Strange. Uh, and as you pointed out in the last issue of Doctor Strange, these two didn't quite meet, although they were um, in the same book. Well, at this point, Doctor Strange is just like, hey, I've heard of that Thor guy. Let's go ahead and call him in here. He calls him in because Strange is weak after fighting Mordo, dangerously weak. Uh, that He might die or something else bad might happen. Now, obviously, Doctor Strange is a little off-model, and his lair is a little off-model, but Kirby does have a lot of fun with his lair in the middle of page three, including this this awesome little chair. It's not a throne, but it's it's this sort of modern design chair in the background, and all of these statuary and wonderful sort of ways Kirby is enjoying playing in Dicko's sandbox. Yes, and lots of uh, Asian, probably Buddhist-looking art that is all around the place. It looks like a mishmash of Southeast Asian and Tibetan and <laughs> yes. and Chinese and all sorts of other stuff. But still, yes, uh, tons of fun with it. Uh, Thor calls an ambulance and tells them that Dr. Strange is Blake's patient. So go ahead and take him to the hospital and Dr. Blake will meet him there. Dr. Blake comes in and does whatever sorts of surgery that Dr. Strange needs after his fight with Baron Mordo. But they make it clear that he's not actually doing, he says, no, 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 no drugs known to modern medicine can counteract the effects of the spell, which would weaken him. Only the fact that I can draw upon the unearthly knowledge of Thor can save his life. So usually they imply that Don Blake is just doing earthly medicine. But now they're making it clear that Don Blake is using specialized guardian knowledge to do unearthly medicine, even though he maybe is in his Don Blake able, form. Maybe that's the way he's able to keep his practice going, even though he neglects it so badly. You know? Yes. <laughs> People are like, I don't know, he's got these magic cures. I know he's never here when I come in for an appointment, but I mean, come on. 
Okay, while he's in the middle of his operation or procedure or whatever it is he's doing, Odin, meanwhile, is about to embark on, was it some military operation or something like that? Yeah, it's not clear at the time, but it'll be clear later that, yeah, they're about to engage in some sort of major military campaign and he desperately needs his son's help and his son turns him down. Yeah, so Odin summons Thor, but of course, Thor is currently Dr. Blake in the middle of surgery, so he can't come. So Odin is really upset. You do not disobey Odin. But he doesn't have time to do anything about it. He heads off on the Rainbow Bridge to go engage in whatever adventures he wanted Thor to join him in. A spectacular panel on the top of yes. page six of Odin riding his horse, which only has four hooves, not the eight-hooved beast that he rides in mythology and once in the MCU. A spectacular panel of Odin leading troops across the Rainbow Bridge on his flying yes. horse. And Loki realizes that, hey, with everyone gone, the only one that I, you know, I can pretty much go around wherever I want, except Heimdall is, of course, guarding the Rainbow Bridge. So, but all I have to do is fool him. So he turns himself into a bee and just flies out down the Rainbow Bridge. Now, how often bees go flying down the Rainbow Bridge, (laughs) I don't know. But uh, Heimdall seems not to notice it. Maybe he's like, oh, the boss is gone. I can close my eyes. <laughs> so he shows up at Blake's office as an old man. Oh, I'm, I'm, I know it's after office hours, but please help me, sir. And he has his own walking stick that looks suspiciously like Dr. Blake's walking stick. He has a fake fall. He ends up swapping their walking sticks. And then he tosses Dr. Blake's walking stick, which becomes Mjolnir, out the window and transforms into Loki. So he cannot turn into Thor at this point because he doesn't have the magic tool that allows him to do so. Uh, So Loki then kidnaps Jane and takes her to Limbo. So is this, what, the third time we've heard of Limbo at this point? Yeah, Jane, Jane has become a regular habitué of Limbo. She's been deposited there a few times. Uh, but we also saw it with the Space Phantom and a number of other things. Uh, yeah. one, I, it, will continue, it will continue to be a well-used location in the uh, Marvel Universe. Going I guess I love the panel on the top of page nine of Don Blake without his cane having to stagger down the stairs in his building. And uh, there is there is this very sort of film noir, German expressionist looking panel of Don Blake clearly staggering down stairwell after stairwell. When you look at it, it's like, what the heck is going on with the angles in that thing? uh, It's not even M.C. Escher-ish. It looks almost like, yeah, like you said, German expressionism or something like that. It's just really bizarre. It looks like almost a Dali um, staircase. Very, uh, very odd, but very effective. It sort of gets across this idea of him stumbling awkwardly down these flights of stairs. And of course, Dr. Blake can sometimes be more disabled than others. So they chose to have him more disabled this time. So uh, Blake prays to Odin for help, but Odin is off in battle. Blake, aka Thor, takes this as a personal slight. He's like, oh, you know, my dad is so mad at me that I couldn't come during surgery that now he refuses to help me now, not realizing that Odin had called him to go off to battle. And that's where Odin is. So we have. And he um, never seems to put this together in the issue. He never wants to put together like, oh, right. I knew my father wasn't available because I had just turned him down when he needed me to go into battle. Like, (laughs) I should not be that upset that he's not available. 
he told me in advance he would not be available, but he never seems to put that together. He regards this as some unprovoked insult that his father is not available here when he needs him. It's like, yeah, dude, he needed you, man. Don't you remember (laughs) that? He needed you. What have you done for me lately? That's all he can say. Blake, if we remember, had just saved Doctor Strange's life earlier in the issue. Uh, They had shook hands earlier in the issue, and we didn't talk about that. And says, oh, if ever you need anything from me, just let me know. That happens very quickly here. Blake then takes a cab over to Doctor Strange, lets him know only what he needs to know, which is that I've lost my walking stick. It is very important that I get it back. It's a matter of life and death. And then Doctor Strange just says, you need explain no more. (laughs) Your motives are your own affair. Uh, And so he's going to go ahead and help him, even though he doesn't know why this is important. Doctor Strange goes out in his ectoplasmic form through the city and eventually finds that the walking stick has been turned into a fishing rod by some, I don't know, hobos, vagrants, (laughs) Um, something like that. He then scares them by takes no action. He just goes home and tells Don Blake, like, yep. I found your stick. It's being used as a fishing rod by some bums. You might want to go deal with that. And so then, oh, no, I see. But then one of them says, get out of here, Charlie. The place is haunted. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I've tried I to. Guess they, I guess they can see his ectoplasmic self. In but how did to... Dr. Strange go says, yes, I will fly around the city until I find your stick. I found the stick. With the speed of thought, the hovering apparition returns to his mortal form, tells Don Blake what he's found, and then minutes later, Don Blake rushes across town, finds them fishing with his cane, and then Doctor Strange then returns to then help him scare the bums. Yeah, I, I think this is something where Stan Lee looked at this page and was like, wait a minute, how did Blake get there? How did he get the information? What's going on? And so threw in that exposition about going back and, you know, telling Blake and then coming back over. So, yeah, I think that's one of those uh, Marvel method type moments there. Meanwhile, Odin gets back from his battle and he is then communicating to Thor saying, Thor, we have much to discuss. Thor is just acting very petulant at this point. Like, no, dad, you weren't there when I needed you. So I'm not going to talk to you now. I just wanted a Pepsi. And you wouldn't give it to me. Yeah, and it's like, Thor, you were the one who started this. You turned him down before he ever turned you down. But that is completely forgotten. As sometimes has been known to happen in marriages, it's like, oh, you're upset with me? Well, I'm more upset with you. And it's like, oh, I'm I'm so sorry you're upset with me. I'm like, wait, wasn't I the one who was upset first? I do love how on the bottom of page 11, I don't want to skip that, you know, we have... Odin marching home from war wearing his fabulous helmet. And then there's a picture where he is seemingly toweling off later in the day because he has no helmet on and he's wearing some sort of hooded robe or something. Oh, this, is not the the last, not, this is not the last time we will see him in, in a robe after uh, taking a bath. You work up a sweat. That's what I'm trying to say when you're fighting war against the... It never says who... It says, meanwhile, in Asgard, Odin is victorious legions return flushed with victory, but we never do find out who they were fighting. Odin comes and tries to talk to Thor. Thor basically tells him to go bug off. Then the Avengers show up and they're like, oh, we're going to help you. And he says, no, thanks. I'm going to take care of this myself, which seems like a really odd appearance for the Avengers, which is there for like three panels. When the Avengers show up, we have what I think might be, and you can correct me if we've seen this before, our first reference to the Beatles. 
when they when they introduced the villain, the Beatle, they did mention a time not to be confused with the rock band. So they uh, mentioned okay. the Beatles then. So uh, Beatlemania was just getting into full swing at this point. So here's one thing I want to point out. Thor is like, nope, I got this myself. Head on Avengers. I don't need you. So he goes up to the top of the Empire State Building. He tells us that all the gods of Asgard emit an aura of free flowing electrons from their person. Now, I'm taking this a bit far, but I'm going to point out that there are three main types of atomic decay radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. Gamma rays, we know all about those, right? but beta rays are essentially just loose electrons and positrons that just shoot out by themselves. So I submit that we are learning here that as guardians give off beta rays. Oh, like Beta Ray Bill. They, like Beta later, Ray Bill. Thor character. Exactly yes. Right. Indeed. Uh, I doubt that was a, a, something that was done on purpose by anybody. I s- severely doubt it. Yes. yes. Uh, but in my head canon, it now is. So <laughs> Thor then is able to trace Loki to the Adirondacks by these, uh, this, these free-floating electrons that they give off. So they get into a fight. Thor calls on Doctor Strange to go and protect Jane Foster while he, Thor is busy fighting Loki. Dr. Shane says, yep, I'll go up to Limbo and I will do that. So we have a decent fight scene between Thor and Loki. Comes across as a little (laughs) bit generic, but you know. Rather um, generic and the ultimate generic fight scene thing to happen of all fight scenes that have ever been. The most generic thing is at one point, Loki is like, oh, I'll just have you step here. And oh, I dug a hole in the ground and covered it up with leaves and you fell through the leaves and you fell in a hole in the ground. And we see that Thor has his hammer. Thor, hammer in hand, falls into a hole in the ground and can't get out. And it's like, this is yet again another case of Lee having a hard time explaining Kirby's wrongs. Like, why on earth would it be bad for Thor to fall in a pit? And then they have to... They have me saying on the next page, though the pit is too narrow for me to swing my hammer enough to fly out, I am able to prop myself against the slippery sides an inch upward by sheer brute strength. Like, dude, this is really tremendously lame. You can't have (laughs) Thor fall in a pit that had been covered with leaves and be in any way inconvenienced by that if he's got his hammer in his hand. No, absolutely not. But while he's trapped down in the pit, Loki decides, okay, now I shall presumably kill Jane, or at least do great harm to her while Thor is trapped so that he will be aware of what he's doing. But Doctor Strange is indeed protecting Jane from a distance. Using his amulet, Thor is able to get out. (laughs) Then he's, you know, he uses his hammer to go ahead and shatter all of these trees that are around and, you know, splinters are flying everywhere. As they're still fighting here and uh, Loki has just gotten away from Thor's grip, a big bunch of clouds show up right behind him. It seems that this is actually is is it a named asgardian character but an asgardian warrior has been sent to earth to go get loki and bring him back to his asgardian prison he gets snatched up before he can continue the fight with thor odin then speaks to thor mentally and says thor my son your battle with loki was a valiant one i witnessed your courage your skill odin is proud of you and thor says thank you noble father and i apologize for my imp- intemperate behavior towards you earlier but now i must return the girl before she awakens so they, they do kind of make up by yeah. the end. that's it this one's okay uh, i mean i'm glad that he's fighting loki and i'm glad we see odin in his you know fly robe and <laughs> an 
army of Asgard heading out to battle, even if we don't see the battle itself. There are some neat visuals in here, certainly. But like I said, as the uh, fight goes between him and Loki, it didn't necessarily jump out at me as one of the greatest things ever. No. Um, and there was the dumb stuff about getting trapped in the pit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I say in my notes, great to have Loki and Odin back, but a pretty lame story. That was my summarization of this of this issue. So, um, Tales of Asgard, Home of the Mighty Norse Gods, Trapped by the Trolls, fantastically oh. written by Stan Lee, faithfully drawn by Jack Kirby, fabulously inked by Vince Coletta, finally lettered by Art Symek. We're going to have a long period here where Chick Stone is inking the first half of the book and Coletta is inking the back half of the book. And just the plummet in art quality at every issue is just staggering between Stone sings and Coletta sings. Just the splotchiness. Kirby has lost the ability to draw. It's like, who who penciled this part? Because clearly it's not the same penciler who was penciling the last part. You know, the number one thing about Coletta is people look like they can't stand on their own two legs. He just can't ink people with any sort of feeling of solidity to them. The figure work, the line work is so awkward and clunky and odd that people just don't look like they have any ability to stand. It's just god-awful inking. I will not argue with you there. It's a fun story. I have been less impressed by the last couple of Balder stories than you were, especially the first one. But the second one was all right. But still, I would have liked to have seen Balder doing more. But in this one, I, I really like this one. So an Asgardian traveler shows up in the Troll Kingdom and asks for shelter. The Troll King says, sure, and then shoves him in a dungeon. Opens up an actual trapdoor. So suddenly a trapdoor opens beneath the stranger's feet and whoop, flows yes. in the trapdoor. Yes, I do have to say, I do like that panel where he falls through the trap door. Oh, yeah, it's awesome. Even with Coletta's inks, you can see he's got more spotted blacks in there. Yeah. And it feels a little bit more solid. Not his hands. His hands do look a little ephemeral. He then gets dropped down into this dungeon. In there are other Asgardian prisoners that are enslaved to the trolls. And they feel like they've been abandoned by Asgard and they're never going to see their home again. And then it turns out this traveler is actually Thor, who has been sent on a mission to free these Asgardian enslaved people. He then frees all of them and takes them back to Asgard. Some nice little sequences there on page five, the final panel. Uh, with one last blow of his enchanted hammer, Thor seals the opening to the Troll Kingdom forever. Right? So he just slams it shut. and We're never going to see trolls again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? But what he says is, Nevermore shall men make slaves of others, not in Asgard, not on Earth, not any place where the hammer of Thor can be swung or where men of good faith hold freedom dear. So what time period is this supposed to be <laughs> yes. happening in? Unless this is... Post-1865. Brazil, I think, still had legal slavery yeah, for 1880, that, I think. right? Yeah, it's a little bit like, that's a noble notion that it would have been nice if you would have done something about. Uh, but once again, who knows? Maybe this was earlier in the 20th century or something. Yeah. You get no indication of it, but it could be. With the exception of Cletus Inks, I really like this story. Yeah, I think this was a nice return to form for Tales of Asgard in terms of having a nice epic saga with a beginning, middle, and end. You know, the bad guys being vanquished, which they haven't been for quite some time in this backup feature. It's a rousing little tale. I, it's very exciting. It's not a big surprise that the mysterious stranger turns out to be Thor. 
But uh, it was rather foolish of them to uh, not take his little red baggie away when they locked him up, which happened to have his hammer inside of it. We get awesome panel of him knocking the hell out of all the trolls. And it is it's a lot of fun. All right, let's take a look at Strange Tales number 124, the Human Torch and the Everloven Thing team up to battle the new menace of Facepod Pete. Like, oh dear God, that is the least new menace you could possibly have. This is why do you people love Facepod Pete so much? And the thing is, like, at least Facepod Pete was originally just so deliriously goofy that he was fun. And now they're like, now they're like, no. We know you guys love Pace by Pete, but the thing you didn't like about him was that he was silly and fun. So don't worry. We're going to give you all the Pace by Pete action you love without any of the silly fun stuff. That's all gone. We <laughs> promise. We promise it's going to be deadly serious Pace by Pete from this point on. And it's like, you people, you, why are you so wrong, Stanley? Why, why do you misunderstand us so badly that you think that we want pace by pete without the silliness this is yeah. the worst of all possible worlds Stanley. <laughs> yes, exactly <laughs> so we have here on the cover human torch and thing battling the new pace by pete and then this time dr strange does not get a full half the cover but he has just shrunk down the bottom of the cover great co-feature dr strange risks his very life to solve the mystery of the lady from nowhere so we begin this issue so it is nice that now thing is a permanent co-star in this book I think it's smarter to have Human Torch in the Thing stories than just Human Torch stories. Written by Smiley and Stanley, illustrated by Darlin Dick Ayers, inked by peerless Paul Redman, lettered by adorable Art Simek. Bizarre first page where the yeah. thing shows up at Human Torch's house and he doesn't answer the doorbell right away. So then the thing lifts the entire wall of the front room up off of the house in order to get his way into the house, not well drawn by Ayers. If this was Lee telling Ayers what to draw, then Ayers did not feel up to this task. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> um, okay, I guess you would draw that this way. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. What would be going on at, to us, the leftmost end of that wall that's being lifted up? <laughs> it's like, how, what? How? Is, yes. and, and of course, we're well used to, uh, in Marvel books, having buildings picked up and there are no pipes, no wires, no anything else. But you do notice there is a table with a lamp on it right <laughs> next to one of the uh, walls that's just been lifted up. Where the electricity is coming for that thing, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they get, and of course, a big fight over this, as they always do. We then get Pace Pop. He is lurking out in the bushes. He recalls that, of course, he helped the Avengers defeat Baron Zemo, because they were both paste-themed villains. He was then let out of prison, but of course, is not going right back to his life of crime. He thinks about how silly he used to look. It's like going, oh, I used to look so silly with that big floppy beret, but now I look nice and awesome, and I've got my glue bucket is now built into my metal vest, and I've got these gloves and shoes that can emit paste and allow me to climb things, and I'm so much cooler now. And it's like, oh, Pete, you, you think you are... <laughs> You think you are less lame. You are no less lame. Now, later, he will complete this transformation and change his name from Pace Pop Pete to the Trapster. So I thought maybe he would be the Trapster now that he's wearing this much cooler armor. But uh, no, he is still calling himself Pace Pop Pete. So the worst of all possible worlds. Johnny takes off in his hot rod. Ben is flying off in his fantastic car. The, I was going to say the Trapster. No, Pace Pop Pete attaches himself to Ben, goes off, starts fighting Ben in the middle of the air. So, so he's using his paste gun like Spider-Man uses his webbing. For a lot of yes. this issue. Meanwhile, Johnny is off bowling with Doris. We get a fantastic panel on page eight of a from the perspective of the pins being bowled over by Johnny. Just a tremendously dynamic panel. 
So then something that has never come up before or since, Johnny has a little ring that turns red when Ben's in trouble. I don't know if we've ever seen that before or after. No, no, it, you know, it has to do with somebody is at the controls of a section of the fantastic car that is not supposed to be there. Johnny realizes he's got to go save Ben. Ben is glued to the wall by Pace by Pete. No good. Gets glued to the wall himself. Ben finally realizes, instead of struggling against Pace, he should just smash the whole wall apart. And they, Which, how is that different from struggling against the pace? I mean, the pace question. is up against the wall. And yeah, that was my thing here. I'm like, is that a different thing? <laughs> I don't think it is. So then Ben manages to break out of the wall and defeat the trap. I see I keep on coming to traps or defeat Pace by Pete. And Pace by Pete, even at one point, felt like, oh, I used to look so silly with that mustache and goatee. Like, oh, my God, clean shaven Pace by Pete. You are the worst. That <laughs> mustache and goatee was all you had going for you. He goes back to Doris. And uh, I don't even know how to summarize the end of this issue. They defeat Pace by Pete. That's all I have to say. They each go <laughs> back to their respective places. This is a tremendously lame issue. They have taken a lame villain and in trying to make him cooler, have made him even lamer, which seemed impossible. Adding Ben was not enough to save this book. It definitely needs to go. It definitely needs to end. Let's go ahead and, and get on to the much better, as always, back Well, well just what, one more thing I'm going to say about this stupid costume for Pace by Pete is that his big, bulky chest piece, which that stores his paste reservoir, basically, I think that's supposed to make him look bigger and more imposing, but it just gives him little chicken legs in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> sort of has the opposite effect that I think was intended. Truly terrible. Okay, now we get to the back half of the book, and I think of myself as knowing these Dicko Doctor Strange stories pretty well, but I've been shocked on this issue that... Dicko did not ink himself, and the always terrible George Bell had turned up to ink Dicko in the last issue, and here we are again in this issue, and I went ahead and I looked ahead. It happens again next issue, so we've got three issues oh, wow. in a row where George Bell inks Dicko on Doctor Strange, which is just a tragedy, and then that's it. Every Dicko Doctor Strange story before that was inked by Dicko. Every Dicko Doctor Strange story after next issue, I'm happy to say, will be inked by Dicko, but we get these three issues in a row inked by George Bell, which is a tragedy. The inking is much better in this one than it was in the last one. Maybe if Dicko has been experimenting with the idea of not inking the book himself, he probably complained about last issue. Maybe they're trying it again with George Bell trying a little harder this issue, but eventually, thankfully, Dicko will realize this is ridiculous. I got to go back to inking myself. We have a fun story, The Mystery of the Lady from Nowhere. Can you guess the identity of the lady from nowhere? Anyway, so Dr. Strange is flying around town. He finds this mysterious woman walking around town with some sort of mystical aura around her. She is wearing crimson robes. She has a veil. He decides to go ahead and take her back to his place and then try to figure out what's wrong with her. Can't figure it out. Goes to the ancient one. Ancient one says, you got to go back in time to find the person who charmed her. He lights a candle and says, you got to make it back before this candle goes out. Doctor Strange goes back in the past, finds an ancient warlord named Zota, who he thinks is zonked the lady from nowhere. Doctor Zoto briefly imprisons him in a prison of rolling light, but Doctor Strange realizes he can cause some of the smoke in the room to block the light and then get himself free. He makes it so that Zoda will never do this to anybody else again, comes back to modern day, but, oh, doesn't get back soon enough. The candle has gone out, and we have a really sort of nicely dramatic sequence of oh, yeah. Dr. Strange realizing he's been trapped forever in the past, and the candle has gone out, and then he's got to get out. It's sort of lame. I wish he then came up with a clever solution. Instead, he's just, you know, does what he always does. It opens up his amulet and tries really hard and thinks really hard and manages to make it out, but there is a definite feeling of huge exhaustion on his part, and what a toll this has been on both him and the ancient one and then he goes back and he says now i will return this lady from nowhere back to her own time this lady who turns out to be cleopatra and he sends her back to her own time 
And we get an amazing panel for the final panel of the issue of Doctor Strange standing in the middle of uh, two circles with a little wisp of smoke between him and the viewer. But I wish that they they sort of play up this idea of like, can you guess the mysterious identity of the lady from nowhere? And then at the end, it's like her mysterious identity is she's Cleopatra. It's like, okay, you gave us zero clues for that. You gave us zero <laughs> ways to solve this thing if there had been like little clues piling up throughout the story like oh you know she seems to be afraid of snakes or you know if there had been little clues going like ah now oh if i should have put it together before it was cleopatra instead it just comes out of nowhere i guess the idea is that it is someone from the past who was attractive and in marvel comics the only woman in the past who was attractive is cleopatra so i guess however she does the, not look like however she does not look like elizabeth taylor in this incarnation no, she does not. I think it's a perfectly fine story. It's fun. George Bell is not totally ruining Dicko's art. Dicko is still coming through and having some good art in this issue. I think that, you know, the thing that makes this story memorable is that it turns out to be Cleopatra, even though that just comes out of complete nowhere. So if that had not come out of nowhere, it'd be better. But this is a fine story. You know, one of my critiques of Stan Lee sometimes is, you know, while sometimes his words are saving some of the storytelling, sometimes it's just like, dude, back off. The, the the art is doing the work. <laughs> you don't yeah. need to redo it. And I find that on that final panel that looks so cool. But a whole third of the panel is taken up with Stan Lee basically just vamping about Doctor Strange and magic. You could just let that image stand with just like yeah. maybe one sentence. Oh, yeah. Just that image. And then the end would have been a much better panel. The one property he had the most full control over as writer artist was his own Mr. A comics. And he would do all silent Mr. A comics that were just amazing. Tico could just do amazing work with silent comics. Of course, Marvel, never a fan of silent comics. There was infamously a time when Jim Stranko would do five pages without any dialoguing whatsoever, as he just had an awesome five-page espionage sequence going on in Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. And then it wasn't Stanley, it was someone else who was considered to be the editor on the book. It's like, said that they would not pay Stranko for those pages because it's like we pay you to dialogue the pages you didn't dialogue those pages we're not going to pay you marvel <laughs> never a fan of silent storytelling until of course an issue of gi joe uh the silent snake eyes issue yes so they did that and then many years later they decided to do a whole month of silent comics called the nuff said month they decided to uh have everybody try their hand with silent storytelling now that would have been absolutely awesome to have that final panel have no words happen this is a fun issue. Bell trying his very hardest, not ruining the art, and a fun issue all around. So I think that we have gone far enough for this episode. We don't want to give folks a whole two-plus-hour podcast episode to listen through. Thank you, everybody out there, for listening, and we look forward to seeing you at our next episode. See you soon, guys. Take care. Stay safe out there. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.